Well, we are going to be in Psalm 127 tonight. And I, I tend to kind of jump all over Scripture. So have your thumbs ready or your pages ready. I think I've got most of the major text on some slides that I'll throw up, but I, I tend to cover a lot of ground uh, in Scripture because I firmly believe that the most important tool that we have at our disposal to interpret Scripture is Scripture itself. And so we want to let God's Word interpret itself for us. But, but kind of set us up tonight, how many of you will, will admit to being alive in 1965? Bless y'all. I was born in 81, so... You know, I wasn't around, but I grew up with my my grandparents and my great grandparents. And so apparently I've, I've got a bit of a penchant for TV and movies of that particular era. And, and one movie that I remember seeing that that was released in 1965 was called Shenandoah. Anybody remember that? I see some hands. Y'all probably know where I'm going already. Um, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Stewart plays Charlie Anderson in that movie. I get the names backwards. Um, and he is a Virginia farmer about the time of the Civil War. And his wife had died, but as a deathbed promise to her, he, he assured her that he was going to raise their children as Christians, even though he himself was pretty weak in it. So he would take them to church on Sundays and every meal he would gather them for a time of prayer. And so one scene in the movie, they've gathered around the table and uh, it's time to bless the meal. And this is the prayer that he prays. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord for the food we're about to eat. Amen. <laughs> Some of y'all remember that scene, don't you? Great scene. Horrible theology. But it kind of teases up because that scene actually resonated with the spirit of self-reliance that was so prevalent in the United States in the mid-20th century and continues to exist today. All too often, we, we kind of give a nod to God that, yeah, we know you're here, we know you're involved, we know you're doing things, but really it's us. We're doing this, we built this, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. But, but that's just not the case, is it? You know, to uh, quote Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, he says, there's no such thing as a self-made man, that is the man or woman who has pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. From a human point of view, he may appear to have succeeded by sheer dent of tenacity and hard work, but who gave him that entrepreneurial spirit and business acumen that enabled him to succeed? It was God. And so while we tend to drift, we tend to say, okay, God, you're involved and we did all this, but thanks anyway. We need to get back to focusing on the fact that our lives have to be saturated with the presence of God or they are absolutely meaningless. And that's ultimately what the psalm that we're looking at tonight teaches us. With that, let's, let's take a look at Psalm 127. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. 
Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. All right, so I know that uh, many of you are familiar faces to me, so I know that you've been here for many of these Psalms of Ascent. And so as we kind of tee this up, we, we want to cover just a bit of background, but the vast majority of background has been covered in, in other sessions. So the first thing we want to see is that this is, in fact, a psalm. And, and that's something that, as, as someone who loves teaching Romans and Corinthians and, and those types of books, I love to dig deep into theology and do word studies and things like that. I have to bring myself back to that fact when I teach from psalms, because it is, in fact, written as a song, which means that when we approach the book of Psalms, we, we interpret this genre of literature more like poetry, which means that we're, we're kind of, we have a bit more freedom to kind of read some meaning, to see what the writer's really trying to say without getting very, very precise. So we're going to take a look at a couple of different things as we do this. In fact, when I, when I study Psalms, I, I'll try to find a, a version of the Psalm actually sung in Hebrew to kind of remind me that this is what it sounds like and there's rhythm and there's rhyming just like we have in our English song so that we don't get so hung up on exact words. We're trying to derive meaning more so than specificity. This is also a psalm of ascent, a specific type of psalm. And while this has been covered, we basically just want to remember that these were intended to be sung most likely on the journey up to Jerusalem and that would have been associated most closely with Passover. So perhaps families were singing these songs as they were going. Perhaps there were people in the courtyard of the temple that were singing these uh, during the time of Passover. We, we really don't know all of that. We have to guess a bit and fill in some gaps. But it's a song of celebration during a time of intense celebration. This particular psalm of ascent is attributed to Solomon. Many of them, we have no idea who wrote them, but this one we have an inscription to Solomon. And, and that seems to fit to me when we think about Solomon and his life, uh, knowing that he, he rose to the throne and, and followed in the steps of his father David. He took on a lot of responsibility. And one of the things we know about Solomon is that he did a lot of building. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he tells us exactly what he did. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Do you notice in there the recurring word? I did it. I made it. In fact, if you line off all of those verses up, we see the first two words are exactly the same in each verse. I made, I made, I made, I planted, I built. So we see some synchronicity between what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes and something that he's trying to say to us in this particular psalm of ascent about doing it yourself. But he did build many, many things. And so as a builder... Maybe he learned a lesson over time. As a king, he also relied upon watchmen, and we're going to talk about them later, to watch over the city, to watch over all that he had built in order to preserve it. So there seems to be 
plenty of evidence to support that Solomon was, in fact, the author of this, and we can look at some of his other writings and kind of put a few other pieces together as well. But let's, let's take a look at verse 1. And by the way, before I scare you, um, because I have a bit of a reputation in my life group of being long-winded, um, I'm going to spend a lot of time on these first two verses. So don't get scared thinking this guy's only gotten through two verses. We got three more to go and it's almost time to get out of here. Um, I promise you it's going to move a little quicker when we get through the first two. But there's so much here. Uh, we want to build a good foundation before we get to those last three verses. So verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So we see here that the Lord is a builder. He creates things. We, we know this from Genesis chapter one, right? With four words, God spoke creation into existence. Let there be light. So from the very beginning, we have to acknowledge that he is a builder. He is a creator. He continues doing that. And so when we start to think about, well, what is it that God builds as a builder here? We have to start with everything. We have to start with everything. And so what is this verse referring to? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, and lab uh, build it labor in vain. You can't find an exception to that. Whatever you try to create, it doesn't matter if you're talking about a ministry, a business, a family, whatever it is. Anything that you manage to build apart from the Lord, he's still going to put the same label on it and say it's in vain. It's meaningless. But I want to look at three specific things that I believe that this is referring to. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front that I have a bias. I think, I think Solomon was really pointing to one of these more so than anything else. But I think there's three that we can take a look at and be on solid ground. The first one is our salvation. Unless the Lord builds our foundation, it is in vain. Unless the Lord builds our foundation, it is in vain. Why do I come up with that? Well, the word house in Hebrew often referred to a religious system or a system of belief. And so we could infer that the house here is that system of belief. That's your faith, your, your salvation. And we know from the New Testament that there's plenty of support to say, unless the Lord does it for you, you're toast. We start with Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one will be justified in his sight by their own works, by their own efforts. A few chapters later, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So now that I've realized there's nothing I can do on my own that through the law, I have no ability to affect my own salvation. Who in the world will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Paul, again, in Galatians 2, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we have the building blocks of our salvation coming together that we are absolutely incapable on our own of achieving salvation, that we are dependent upon someone else to do it for us. We're broken, and yet he has intervened and he has given us new life through Jesus Christ. Now, to, to borrow a quote from John MacArthur, if you've been loved from eternity past, why are you worried about your future? 
If you've been loved from eternity past, if God himself declared before the foundations of the heaven and earth that you would be one of his elect people. What are you so worried about? We'll come back to that later. The second interpretation of house I believe we can look at is the church. Because sometimes we see the word house refer to the temple. I will build a house for the Lord. David talked about doing that. Solomon then took over that effort and actually got it done. So if we think of house as the church or as the temple, unless the Lord builds the church, those who try to build it labor in vain. Now, Jesus himself said that he would build his church. And not only that he would build it, but that it would last forever. Matthew 16, 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So regardless of how much negativity you see in the media about how Christianity is faring these days, we don't have to be concerned about God continuing to build his church. Jesus has made an assertive statement. I will build it and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Unfortunately, when we study church history and we look particularly back over the 20th century, we see that a lot of people lost sight of this. And, and there was a lot of man looking at church growth and saying, we have to do it. We have to accomplish this goal. We've got to come up with the right programs and, and practices in order to do this. And what we ended up with is something that was kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. And so I, I love um, Dallas Willard's teaching on this. He, he talks about this in a lot of different books, but he says churches have been more focused on producing converts than on making disciples. You see, with this promise in mind that it's the Lord who's going to build his church and sustain it, by the way, that's what we can focus on. We can focus on building true disciples. We can focus on going deep. We can focus on living life in the kingdom of God in the here and now rather than expecting that only in the future. That's available to you now. We can go deep because it's the Lord who builds it and the Lord who sustains it. The third thing, unless the Lord builds the family, those who build it labor in vain. A few words about this now. We're going to come back to it later. But I believe that this is primarily what Solomon had in view when he was writing this psalm. That unless the Lord builds the family, those who build it labor in vain. We have some information about Solomon's family. We don't have everything we'd like to know, but we have some information about it. And we know that there were some challenges there. There was a lot of people involved in it, but we don't know everything. And so in my mind, I envisioned that Solomon looked at the family he had built and had all these sons and daughters by a whole lot of different women. And you can only imagine the infighting, right? You can only imagine the problems that that created. So I believe that at some point in his life when he wrote this, he came to this realization, the Lord has to be in it. The Lord has to be in it. How does that begin? Well, that begins with the Lord building the marriage. Because families ultimately begin when you take two individuals and they say, we're no longer going to live on this earth as two individuals, but we're going to bring ourselves together as a one flesh union and create this thing that God calls a family. 
That was God's idea back in Genesis chapter 2 when he said it's not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Let's bring these two people together and start a family here. Now, what Mark didn't mention is most of my time is spent doing Christian counseling. And, and so I work in mental health counseling and marriage counseling. And so I've seen a lot of families that were not built on a firm foundation. I've seen a lot of families that it's pretty clear that the Lord didn't build the house. And you've probably seen many of those situations yourselves. You've seen the messes, the disasters, that when the Lord is not in it from the very foundation, the house can't stand falls apart. And so the Lord has to be in the marriage first and foremost. Unfortunately, what I've observed is that many couples try to build their marriage based on self-service. What do I mean by that? Well, it shows up in premarital counseling with people saying, I can't wait to get married. It's going to be so great to have someone to do X for me. Fill in the blank. It's going to be so wonderful. I can get my needs met finally. Whatever that may be. It's the wrong approach. By the way, it shows up in marriage counseling almost the exact same way. My spouse isn't meeting my needs. And there is a place for love languages and love needs and all that kind of stuff. I tend to spend a lot of time talking about those kinds of things. But those things are secondary to self-service or to self-sacrifice, which is God's design for marriage. And unless we build our marriages on the foundation of self-sacrificial love, it tends to fall apart. And so that's where it starts. If the Lord is going to be in it, if the Lord builds the house, he calls us to build a marriage that's based in self-sacrifice, not self-service. From marriage, it goes into the realm of parenting, and that's the one I'm going to put on hold and come back to later in those last few verses. So the first thing that we see here is that the Lord is a builder. Now, the second thing that we see in the first verse is that the Lord is also a preserver. Because the second part of that verse says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Okay? What in the world is the watchman? Well, in these ancient cities, they tended to be surrounded by these very thick walls and watchmen would be appointed to actually walk around those walls and keep watch to see if an, an enemy was approaching. We see a clear example of this in Ezekiel. I don't know if you guys can read that or not, but I want you to see this to put everything in context. In Ezekiel 33, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land... And the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take away this, um, does not, if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. 
But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you see this, this setup that God commanded the Israelites to have this system of watchmen in place. And the watchmen really had two jobs. Keep watch and warn the people. It's not very complicated, is it? But I don't know about you, but I don't like to stay awake at night. And for a, for a season of my life when I was in seminary, I, I worked with our campus police department. And my role was essentially to be a watchman. That uh, one of our off-campus apartment complexes, I literally would walk around this complex all night long. If anybody's ever done that, you know, you check in at different site, you know, spots to show that you're actually doing your job. And, and I'm almost a little ashamed to admit it, but there were a few nights where I went back to the office and without even realizing it, I fell asleep. And I would kind of awake with a startle and look at the clock and see how long it had been since I last made my rounds and frantically go and try to make sure nothing had gone wrong. Fortunately, it never did. But that's, that's a picture of what I see here. The watchman has to stay awake. The watchman has to stay awake. But unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The watchman's there. He's there to warn the people. But ultimately, the Lord has to be watching that city as well because what's God saying here? The watchman can do his job. You can even listen to him. But if I decide I'm going to wipe that place out, none of it matters. None of it matters. Unless it's me who's protecting and preserving this city, it doesn't really matter what you do. Does that sound applicable in our day? All of our striving to protect that which we have to keep things in order unless the Lord watches over it we stay awake in vain there's more to the watchman's story though and that is that God told Ezekiel as a prophet that he would be a watchman so you son of man I have made a watchman for the house of Israel whenever you hear a word from my mouth you shall give them warning from me so we see two watchmen in this. We see that God has appointed Ezekiel to be that watchman who stays awake. When I give you a message, you go warn the people. So your job is to watch, listen in this case, and warn. But who's the real watchman in this verse? Because the warning is from the Lord. The Lord. So I, I was reading this and, and it just really struck me that God's given us watchmen the Lord gave the prophets to the nation of Israel to be watchmen. In our day, the Lord has given us the completed canon of Scripture to be a watchman for us. And ultimately, the Lord is watching over us and He's warning us even when the threat is Himself. And that's what we need to see most clearly here is that the Lord watches over us, but ultimately, He's watching us, He's warning us about His wrath to come. How do we know that? In Jeremiah 51, 12, 
He said, set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. What's God saying there? Set up all the stuff you want. I'm going to wipe Babylon off the map. And that's exactly what he did. He said, I'm coming. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist came preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord sent John the Baptist to say, I'm coming. Here's your watchman. Pay attention to him. And in Revelation 22, three times, the same one who used four words to speak the world into existence, let there be light, said, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And so the Lord is watching over us. He's giving us warning. But just as he said through the prophet Ezekiel, we have to heed that warning. Pay attention. The Lord is watching over us. Don't let it be in vain. Finally, going to move on to verse 2. I titled this section, How to Have a Miserable Life. So, a little bit of a hard shift here. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. A word that we see recurring here, both in verse 1 and now again in verse 2, is the word vain. Well, what does it mean that something is vain? Well, when I, when I first saw that, my mind immediately went to the book of Ecclesiastes, since Solomon wrote this psalm, and Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon refers to things as vain, meaningless. A little bit of Hebrew study, and I find that it's not the same word. And so I can't tell you with absolute certainty if this is one of those times where because this is written as poetry, that a different word is used because it just fit the scheme better, or if it's intentionally different. Because the word used in Ecclesiastes generally means breath or vapor, that which passes quickly. But the word that's used here in Psalm 127 for vain is the same one that's used in the Ten Commandments for do not take the Lord's name in vain. Meaning, do not use it meaninglessly, worthlessly. And so, what, what this is really saying to us is that all of your efforts, your efforts to build your efforts to build a religious system, your efforts to build a church ministry, the efforts to build a family, your efforts to build a business, it's all worthless unless the Lord is the foundation of it. It's also saying your efforts to preserve that which you have, to keep your business afloat, to make sure that you know nobody comes in and steals your stuff at your house or any of those kinds of things. It's all in vain. It's all worthless unless it's the Lord who's watching over it. But what's he saying is vain here in verse 2? To rise up early and go late to rest. When I was a teenager, I really would have loved to have been able to take this verse out of context. I mean, can't you just see a teenager reading this verse and saying, the Bible says it's pointless to get up early. <laughs> My teenagers would say that. I know I would have said that when I was a kid. But what's it really referring to? Remember that this was an agrarian society. 
I mean, they were farmers. And so they had to work the land. And so they could put in all this effort, getting up early in the morning and plowing the fields and planting seed and watering the ground, pulling weeds, all those kinds of things. But ultimately, they were dependent upon the Lord to provide the harvest. You see, it's the exact opposite scenario from that prayer we mentioned at the very beginning. Where they looked at it and said, we did all this stuff, but we thank you anyway. The focus here is, we're going to do the stuff, but it's absolutely pointless. It's worthless unless the Lord is involved in it. Why is that in an agrarian society? Because the Lord can say, I'm going to bring a drought. And it doesn't matter how many seeds you plant. It doesn't matter how many weeds you pull. You won't have a crop. The Lord can say, I'm going to bring a plague. He did it. I'm going to wipe out the food supply for a while. And so you can do all that you want, but if the Lord is not in it, it's worthless. Worthless striving. So what, what's that saying to us today? Um, I, I have had seasons of my life where I enjoyed dabbling in ancestry. And uh, one of the things that I discovered is that uh, in my family heritage, I am the first in about 200 years who did not make my vocation farming. I grew up on a farm, and apparently everybody behind me that I could trace also did that. Anybody else grow up on a farm? It's hard work, right? It's grueling. You, you get up, you do all this work, you do everything you possibly can, but I tell you what, some of the farmers I grew up around were the most Christian people I ever met. Those who truly understood that their survival depended upon their prayer life. That they had to seek the Lord. Because if he decided to shut the reins off, they were toast. But what about us? Most of us aren't working on farms. I get up every day, I go to an office. Some of you probably do the same thing. Maybe you work from home. Maybe you teach kids in school. What does this say to us? Well, this is really referring to anxiously working, anxious striving in our vocational efforts. Where we, we look at our situation and say, I've got to make this happen. I've got to produce this income. We're, we're behind, we've got to hit this goal, we're gonna be in trouble. I've got to make this happen. And this verse is saying, no, you don't. You have a provider. You have one who has said, hey, I can take care of clothing the lilies of the field and feeding the birds. What are you worried about? And as we mentioned earlier, you've been loved from eternity past, so why are you worried about your future? But that's what this is referring to. It's anxious toiling, the bread of anxious toil, strenuous work that is ultimately meaningless, frantically trying to control our own outcomes by our own effort. Now, you see the word anxiety, and you're a Christian counselor like me, you have to stop and talk about that for a second. I, I can't run past that one. So I've given you the context that this, this particular word here is referring to frantic working vocationally to try to provide rather than relying upon the Lord. But we should look at other forms of anxiety and, and just kind of ask ourselves, is this applicable? And the answer is yes. 
there, anxiety manifests in a lot of different ways. For example, uh, anxiety can be the product of traumatic past. And there may be situations in your life that have happened that have left your brain hyper-responsive to certain stimuli and that triggers anxiety in certain situations. That's a particular type of anxiety. Anxiety can be the result of being in situations or around people that are overwhelming. I need to say that one again. I think everybody needs to remember that one sometimes. Sometimes you will feel anxious because you are in situations or around people who are overwhelming. Which means that we have to ask ourselves when our alarm systems kick off, is this me or is this external? Is, is this someone that I'm encountering that my body's saying this is a threat? Is this a situation? What is this? But I believe that the number one cause for anxiety, in fact, I remember Carrie asking this question last week and saying, uh, we know there's a lot more anxiety now, but do we really know why? And I think the answer to that is probably a plural answer. But here's one that I think is important. And this is a quote from Dr. Archibald Hart. He's kind of one of those grandfathers of Christian counseling. He said, why such a dramatic rise in the incidence of anxiety disorders? In a nutshell, many people live too disconnected, carry too much debt, and live at too fast a pace. People were designed to travel at a camel's pace, but they behave like supersonic jets, running constantly on a supercharged stream of adrenaline. And they end up paying for this abuse with worry and anxiety. Too much, too fast. By the way, that quote is now 22 years old. In 2001, people were saying, we have too much, we've gotten it too fast, we're moving too quickly. Has anything changed in the world in 22 years? This is pre-iPhone, people. This is pre-social media that people were saying this. Think about how the world has exploded since then. In fact, a, an interesting statistic for you is that the average human today processes somewhere around 76 gigabytes of information every day. It's probably a meaningless number unless you're a computer nerd. Sorry if I offend you. But break it down, that's the equivalent of 16 full-length movies. Okay, 16 movies. Now, let's, let's compare that with human history. 500 years ago, we had the Protestant Reformation. So we're thinking folks like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Zwingli. That same amount of information, that 76 gigabytes, is the amount of information the leading thinkers of that day would have processed in their lifetime. 500 years later, we're doing it every single day. I wonder why we have so much anxiety. I wonder if the word of the Lord says anything to us about that problem. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Endless striving, endless seeking, running, doing, seeking, eating the bread of anxious toil. All the things you're trying to do, all the things you're trying to make happen, it's giving you anxiety. What's the solution to that? Well, I generally teach my clients spiritual disciplines to help counteract that. How does that help? Well, when you think of spiritual disciplines as things like solitude, silence, meditation, prayer, fasting, those things begin to work together to help alleviate the anxiety problem. But you can't just say, well, be less anxious. That won't work. You have to change your behavior. 
And so what scripture is saying to us here is, look at what you're doing here. You're running frantically on this supercharged stream of adrenaline. Stop it. Just stop it. Because the second part of this verse is how to have a restful, enjoyable life. And it's a very short statement. For he gives to his beloved sleep. I love that. I'm so glad it says that. He gives to his beloved sleep. First of all, notice that it uses the word beloved. I, I, I regularly encounter people that are, are saying things like, I just don't feel loved. I don't know that anyone actually loves me. Anyone actually cares about me. Here's your answer to that. Beloved. Beloved. See, what happens is we go through life, we tend to borrow our opinion of ourselves from what we perceive other people to think about us. If, if I think that you think I'm okay, then I'm, I'm going to think that I'm okay. But if I perceive that you think that, you know, I'm kind of worthless, then I'm going to start to think that maybe I really am worthless. We borrow our opinion of ourselves from other people. I don't even like the word self-esteem for that very reason. We should call it borrowed esteem. And when you see a word like beloved, you can go to that and you can borrow your opinion of yourself from what God himself has to say about you. That you are loved now, you have been loved from eternity past, and you will be loved for eternity future if you are in Christ. And that's something you can hang your identity on. That you are truly loved by God. Part of being loved is being seen. And... Um, I love uh, the passage in uh, Genesis 16 where the angel of the Lord has come to Hagar who's kind of running in distress. And in response to this conversation with the angel of the Lord, Hagar says, you're the God who sees in this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. The one who sees me. You know, the greatest human need is to be fully known. It's also the thing that terrifies us the most to be fully known because we fear if anyone actually really knew everything about me, you would reject me. And you probably would. But there's one who won't. There's one who won't. There's one who calls you his beloved. You are his beloved. And because of that, he gives you sleep. When we go to sleep, by the way, there's a, there's a relationship between sleep problems and mental health disorders. And that is that roughly 50% of people who have a mental health diagnosis also have problems with sleep. And people who have a problem with sleep tend to have, or 50% chance of having a mental health disorder. There's a relationship there. Which one causes which? We have no idea. It's a bi-directional relationship. But we tend to see sleep be a major factor in a lot of issues. And so I love that God goes right to this here and says, I want to give you sleep. I want to give you sleep. What, what's so important about sleep? Well, God created it. And in his divine wisdom, when he could have created you without a need for sleep, he said, I'm going to create you in such a way that you sleep away a third of your life. Enjoy. It's a gift. Because when you go to sleep, you surrender to the sovereignty of God. When you go to sleep, you lay down your hands and say, 
I'm not in perceived control anymore. I thought I was. I really wasn't. But now I'm even laying that down. I don't know about you guys, but uh, because of my work with disaster relief, when hurricane season rolls around, um, I pay attention. And probably like most of you, the hours that the National Hurricane Center releases their updates are pretty well imprinted in my mind, and I regularly check those updates. And then I realized this year, you know, yeah, 8 o'clock I pay attention, 11 o'clock I pay attention, and 2 o'clock I pay attention, 5 o'clock I pay attention, and then I go to bed. And all night long I sleep and I don't care what they say. <laughs> Some of you may set your alarms and we might need to talk later. But I go to sleep. I was so focused on it, so troubled by it at times during the day. But then I went to sleep and I said, forget it. I'm not paying attention anymore. It doesn't matter. I'm surrendering to the sovereignty of God. And he invites us into that experience not just when you sleep, but in all of life. When he's the builder, when he's the watchman, when he's the one who's providing for you, he invites you into this deep soul rest where you can relax into him and let go of some of those concerns. Well, my time's getting short, so I'm gonna move a little faster. We're gonna go back now to unless the Lord builds the family, those who build it labor in vain. With verse three, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Let's stop there for now. Uh, having children is another way of building a house. Okay, you could go build a physical house or you can have kids and build a household. Um, but what we really see here is God's view on children. What is God's view on children? They are a heritage. They are a reward. Unfortunately, that's not how our society sees children anymore, is it? As I was kind of thinking about this particular piece, I uh, started kind of asking myself, what, why is it that so many people are choosing to not have kids anymore? So I went where we all go when we want an answer like that to Dr. Google. And um, I had to share a few of these with you. I'm not going to go through all of them, but these were reasons not to have kids from a, please hear me clearly on this, a horrible source called Psychology Today. Don't ever associate that with true psychology. But here's their answers of why people don't have kids. First of all, no desire. Sure, we got that one. Career, probably hear that one a lot. The state of the world. This is actually one I've heard a lot. People have asked me, you know, I just don't know if I should have kids because the world is so bad. Do I really want to bring kids into that? Okay. Number four. I'm going to get an amen on this, I know. Kids are expensive. <laughs> there we go. I've got three of them. Goodness gracious. Health, medical reasons, okay. Other caretaking responsibilities. A desire to travel. Lifestyle. And this is my favorite, environment. Catch this quote. Children take resources and create pollution and waste. <laughs> People are aware of the environmental impact and the current state of the earth and are choosing not to add more people to the environmental impact. I just can't. 
But the Lord's perspective is they are a heritage and a reward. And that word heritage is derived from the word for inheritance. But whenever we see inheritance related to people, the word heritage is used in the Old Testament. They are a heritage. They are an inheritance from the Lord. And in fact, your kids are the only earthly possession you can take with you to heaven. So invest in them. Invest in them. More than the other things that will take your attention, more than all these reasons that people say not to have kids, because I want to travel, because I want to have a career, because I want to have all of these things that I want. The one thing that can outlive you and that can actually be in heaven with you is your children. Invest in them. It also says they're a reward, like a wage. And I, and I just want to take a moment here and say that we should not read this to be that they are the reward. Okay? It says they are a reward. Because there are many, many people that are unable to have kids for various reasons. They, they want them. They long for that. And they, they're unable to. And there's a lot of grief that surrounds that. And so I want you to see that children are not the only possible reward that the Lord gives. They are a reward, not the reward. We serve a God who has endless creativity and endless resources at his disposal. When we serve him and honor him with our lives, he can reward us in a myriad of ways, however he chooses that which is in our good, right? So they are a reward, and a inheritance, but not the only one. Verse four. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. When I first read this psalm, I said, what in the world? All right, Solomon, how are you tying all this together? How did we get from the Lord building the house and being a watchman and now we're talking about a quiver of arrows and shooting those things and standing in the gate? And, and it took a while of seeking the Lord and studying the passage and then it kind of all came together. Okay? So what's, what's this a picture of? This is a picture of defense. It's a picture of protection. It's a picture that we are, quite honestly, not all that familiar with. It, it doesn't resonate with us because at least on the surface, it's not as much a part of our culture as it was this culture. So what's the picture here? This is a picture of children that have been invested in. They've been sacrificed for. They've been nurtured. And now they've grown up and they're adults. And now we have this picture of, uh, of a grown man, maybe an elderly man. And, and what's the gate? The gate was often the courtroom. Or it was the place where disputes were settled. And so we have this picture of, of an elderly man entering into this place where he's in a dispute. And it says with his enemies. And he shall not be put to shame. So get the picture here. The children are arrows. Where's the quiver of arrows for an archer? And so this is a picture of the man standing here in front of his enemies and, and he's maybe frail 
and, and he's under attack. And all of his children come out and say, you going to take all of us? You going to mess with him? You got to mess with all of us. It's almost like a football team, right? You mess with one, you got to mess with us all. That's what this is a picture of. It's a picture of protection in old age. That the children that have been raised well and cared for, they've been sacrificed for, they've been protected, that now they become the protectors. And the role changes. And he will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What does that look like for us today? Well, for many of us, it looks like caretaking. For many of us, it looks like caretaking that oftentimes children become caretakers for their parents. And that's as God intended it to be. That's as God intended it to be. That our children will rise up. They'll be the ones who are strong. Uh, I've, I was kind of thinking here recently. I, I don't remember what I wanted to do. I was working on something. And uh, I noticed that something that would have normally been easy for me to do a few years ago was not as easy anymore. I, I, I've read some research about like this, you know, when you get into your 40s, you start losing muscle mass and all this kind of stuff. Apparently it's a real thing. Because it was one of those moments where I was like, my goodness, why is this a challenge? And I thought about that as I was studying this, that, you know, I've always been so capable. Lord, Lord's blessed me throughout my life with, you know, being fairly strong and capable of doing things and I'm headed towards a trajectory of being able to do less where I need others to come along and say, we got you. We got you. That's what this is a picture of. That we invest, we nurture, we protect, we build the house on the foundation of the Lord. Having been built on the foundation of the Lord, he's preserved it all of these years and now the, he flips the script and he brings his watchmen in to say, we're going to watch over you. We're going to protect you. Be that from those medical professionals that aren't paying attention and, and need you to be an advocate for your parent to the nursing home folks that are neglecting them possibly, that, that you're going to go in, you're going to fight that battle for them that they can't fight for them. All of those things fit within the context of this psalm. That we become caretakers. We become protectors. So how do we bring this to a close? I titled it The God-Saturated Life. And the reason I chose that title is because of Matthew eleven twenty eight. When we trust God in the building process, we can labor from a place of rest rather than anxious toil. Isn't it refreshing when you can go to work feeling rested? Isn't it refreshing when you feel recharged and you can go spend time with your kids and you can invest in them and things are going well. That happens occasionally, right? But we can labor from a place of rest when God is in the building process. And that's echoed in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So many of us today need rest for our souls. We've done a lot of anxious toiling, 
a lot of striving, and more than more effort. We need rest. We need to rest into the arms of the one who has loved us from eternity past. And when you trust God in the building and you labor from rest, you can also trust him in the watching, that he will watch over that which has been built. He will protect it. He will preserve it. Take the pressure off of you. And then you find rest for your souls. And so examples of this, we might see someone who has faithfully walked with the Lord for many, many years. And they've, they've come to a point later in life where they're anxious. Does the Lord really love me? Am I really saved? I, I, I hate when I see people at that point because we've got to go back and check the foundation. Did the Lord build the house or did you build the house? I hate when I see couples that are in tremendous distress because they've been striving so hard to get what they want out of that relationship because the Lord didn't build the house. They did. And I hate when I see families that are falling apart and crumbling because the Lord didn't build it. They did. Focused on what they thought was best. What they thought their kids needed rather than what the, Lord, the word of the Lord has said they need. So let's Let's heed the words of this psalm. Let's do everything that we can to saturate our entire lives with the presence of the Lord so that we labor from rest. We recreate from rest. We parent from rest. We interact with our spouses from rest. And we live out our salvation in Christ from a place of rest. May he saturate every area of your life. 